First Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five. An old preacher once says, "I tremble more entering the pulpit than I do my great adversary." And how true that is. First Peter chapter five, beginning in verse six. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strength, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, even in these words with our adversary, we hear the victorious, triumphant sounds of God's glory, power, and honor over all things. And Lord, we thank you that, Father, though we're speaking of a defeated foe, yet he's one this morning that can still wreak havoc and woe and pain amongst the believers. I pray that, Father, you'd help us this morning to be more aware and more equipped, Lord, to resist him steadfast in the faith. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand this morning this blessed and divine truth that Peter gives us. And, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to apply it, Lord, in our hearts and lives. And, Father, we might know something of Martin Luther's hymn when he declared that God has declared that his truth should triumph through us. And, Father, Again, I pray you'd be honored and glorified in all we say and do. What's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Our subject this morning is one of great seriousness, and I pray that God would be blessed to give me the grace to speak it clearly that you might understand and that we might be better equipped for the battle which is raging all around us even more today than ever before in the history of God's church. So let me begin with uh, a reading or a quote from one man, William Grinnell, or Grinnell, whoever you want to pronounce his name, who probably wrote the best commentary on the spiritual armor of the Christian from Ephesians 6 as an introduction this morning. So bear with me as I quote what he wrote hundreds of years ago. He said, and I quote, a war between the saint and Satan and that's so bloody a one that the cruelest which ever was fought by men will be found but sport and child's play to this. Alas, what is the killing of bodies to destroying of souls? This a sad meditation indeed, to think how many thousands have been sent to the grave in a few late years among us by the sword of man, but far more astonishing to consider how many of those may be sent to hell by the sword of God's wrath. This a spiritual war you shall read of, and that not a history of what was fought many ages past and is now over, but of what now is doing. The tragedy is at present acting, and that not at the furthest end of the world, but what concerns thee and everyone that reads it. The stage whereon this war is fought is every man's own soul. Here is no neuter in this war. The whole world is engaged in the quarrel, either for God, against Satan, or for Satan, against God. End of quotes. 
it could not be more clearly said than even uh, any man could write than what William Grinnell said of the spiritual warfare. And yet I fear in the day and age in which we live in, these words of William Grinnell have very little meaning to many professing believers today. For there exists such a spirit of complacency and ignorance amongst so many churches concerning this spiritual warfare that Satan has greatly infiltrated and corrupted her very ranks, sowing much discord, dismay, confusion, and havoc. If ungodly men have crept in unawares, as Jude says, then surely Satan himself has made great advances. Yet sadly, undetected and unbeknownst to many professing believers... It's amazing how Christians who have the Word of God and can read these things clearly are so ignorant of the spiritual warfare which we as Christians are wrapped up in. Satan has been very successful in confusing Christians to even believing that he's not even present and that we have no such thing as an adversary. If you're here this morning without Christ, he's not your adversary, he's your master. You live in his darkness, and his only goal, like we said last week, is to see the eternal destruction of your soul. Ever since Adam and Eve was in the garden, and God became their Savior, Satan has vehemently hated mankind. And his ultimate goal is to destroy the very souls of mankind while trying to dwarf the purposes of God. It is a real battle, a true battle, and one which many believers today live as though doesn't even exist. We have been blinded by our own arrogance, and we've been lifted up with pride of our own knowledge of Scripture, thinking that we can defeat such a great adversary. We need to be warned by Peter that we do have an adversary who walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And it's God's Word that gives us the instructions on how we can defeat this foe. To merely sit back and say, well, Christ has always defeated him. He's a defeated foe. I have nothing to worry about. Proves that you are already deceived and blinded by our adversary. He is real, and his tactics... And his devices are evil and wicked. And though Christ saves us and we can never lose our eternal soul, our eternal salvation, he can in this lifetime wreak havoc in our lives as he did in many saints of God throughout history. Christians today are ignorant of that fact, I fear. In fact, many people today, the very idea that such a spiritual adversary whom Peter calls the devil that this very idea is merely a myth, a superstitious invention, says the world of the Christian church, to create fear and dread amongst people. He's merely a myth, a superstition that God's people has made up to create fear and havoc amongst the world. Yet as surely as there is a God in heaven who rules sovereignly over all things and is a God of love, mercy, grace, and long-suffering, as surely also is there a devil. For if there is an ultimate good, logic tells you there must be an ultimate evil. It's logic. If there is an ultimate good, and that is God, He is good and gracious, long-suffering, kind, merciful, forgiving. If there is such an ultimate good, which is God, then there must be an ultimate evil. 
I wish I could tell you clearly from where Satan has his origin. But even Scripture is vague and often mysterious about his origin. Even though people have tried to pull Scripture out of context to prove something, all we know, and the Scripture is clear as that, is that he does exist. And in the Garden of Eden, he was present in the form of Satan. And since that day, he has been walking about seeking whom he may devour. He's real. And he's dangerous. He's deceptive. And he's incessant. Therefore, Peter says here, showing the difference of them both, casting all your care upon Him. God, for He careth for you. There's the ultimate good. God careth for you. And one says, well, if God cares for me, then I'll have to worry about that. But Peter immediately in the same breath, immediately following that says, but be sober, be vigilant, because though God careth for you, you have an adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. God cares that Satan seeks to devour. God sent His Son into the world that the world through Him might be saved. John 3.16 But Revelation says Satan came to deceive the world. You see, ultimate good, ultimate evil. Christ came to open our eyes, Paul said in the book of Acts, to turn us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that we might receive forgiveness of sins. That's why Christ came. Yet Satan says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan would blind the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So you see an ultimate good. God so loved the world, He gave His Son, that we should not perish, all those who believe in Him. But Satan came to deceive the world and blind the minds of men. So you see, there is an ultimate good and an ultimate evil. And regardless of what the world says, common sense. My grandfather used to say the good Lord will give a man many things except common sense. Common sense and logic proves that there's a spirit of evilness and wickedness in the world. You cannot look at the things happening in the world today and blame it all on the depravity of man. Yes, man is depraved and sin is wicked, but you cannot blame it all on depravity of man. There is an evil spiritual enemy in this world that is causing a lot of this. Some of the things happening in the world can only be categorized under demonic and satanic, what people do. Yes, Satan uses the depravity of man to expand his devices, to create evil and havoc? Yes, Satan does use that. But there is a demonic spirit, a demonic evil spiritual warfare in the world that cannot be denied. It's amazing to see how sinful man can do such things that he do, does. Job said man has fallen far below the beast. The beast kills for survival. Man kills for enjoyment. We're vile, we're wicked, we're depraved, and Satan uses that. Oh, this satanic possession, this evil spirit thing, this is, this is just merely a myth, a superstition of the Christian church. It's not true. And why do so many people love the gruesome Stephen King films about demons and devils and 
I'm telling you, we see these things in the world, and to deny that is to be a greater fool than you think you yourself are, to think that it's not true. And Christians have become so naive and complacent that they don't even believe that themselves, and that's why they fall so often uh, under his devices. And like we said last week, you want to see the evidence of that, just merely look at the church's divisions and schisms. Who do you think the author of that is? Satan. Why? One of his titles is called the Accuser of the Brethren. Let us, by God's grace, be alert, be sober, be vigilant. Because though one might vainly attempt to deny that such an adversary of men exists, one only has to, like I said, open their eyes to the vast amount of evil and wickedness in this present world. As a roaring lion, Peter says, as a roaring lion he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. Who's Peter speaking to? The world? No, he's speaking to Christians. The Scriptures declare that though Satan would seek to deceive the whole world, according to Revelations, and blind the minds of them that believe not the gospel, Paul said in Second Corinthians, Beloved, listen to what Peter's saying. Peter's basically, these words saying, that it is against the true believer that his rage is most vehement. It's against the true believer, where Satan is most vehement and aggressive in his tactics. You said, I thought he sought the destruction of all men's souls. Oh, he does. They're wrapped in darkness if they're lost. They're caught in darkness and chained in darkness thinking they see, but they have no light. But his most vehement attacks and rage is directed towards the saints of God, God's people. A pastor, the Bible says, must not be a novice, a beginner. Lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Christians in Ephesians 6 are exhorted to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, putting on the whole armor of God. Why? That we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Who's that exhortation towards? It's towards the believers. Put, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So you can stand there and look pretty like a soldier? No. So that you can wrestle. So that you can fight. And again, I'd love to get in that maybe sometime, but I, I love how Paul used the word wrestle. That's how close the contact. It's a contact sport, spiritually. It's not something that's fought like today with technology from far. It's a contact sport. You wrestle. You wrestle against the wiles of the devil. Why would God allow such a thing? You ever thought about that question? Why would God, who is loving, kind, merciful, and gracious, allow such an adversary to walk amongst men and devour men's souls? Why would God allow that? You can hear it again today in the news with all the things going on now with this terrible shooting here in Texas and other schools. You hear the unbeliever going, why, if you have a God, does he allow such evil things? Why do you blame God? You don't think there's any kind of satanic influence behind any of that? Is it merely because this young man was depraved? Or maybe there was some satanic influence? First thing the world does is blame God. Yet we know as believers that even Satan is under the control of a sovereign God. He said, then why and how could God allow such a thing? 
Oh, that we might know the mind of God, but he's not the author of sin. God is not willing that any should perish. God is merciful and kind and loving. Mankind, out of his own arrogance, wants to blame somebody else. Like I said in, in Genesis, that's how it all started, the blame game. First thing in sin, Adam says, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. She says, it wasn't me, it was the serpent you let in the garden. They all three got punishment from God. Man likes to blame God for everything. But with that said, let me say this. Could have God stopped that? Of course he could. He's sovereign. Why didn't he? I don't know that much of the mind of God, but I know he could have. But he didn't. Man likes to think that he's as wise and smart as God. He's a fool. God is sovereign. Does what he wants. I'm telling you, this whole world, Bible says, lieth in wickedness. What we look, what we see going on around us is because of sin and Satan. And God has placed his church in the middle of it to be a light to shine in darkness. Have you ever, when trying to tell people about Christ, have you ever mentioned not just the fact that they're sinners and they're under the wrath of God because they're without Christ? Have you ever told them as well that there's also an arch enemy that seeks the destruction of their souls? Christians are to beware lest Satan get an advantage of us, Paul said, Second Corinthians. Satan get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices, advantages. Let Satan get advantage of us. You see, Peter's exhortation is not directed to the world, but it's directed to those whom God cares for. God cares for you, but there's somebody who don't. Abel was brother to Cain, whom Scripture declares in 1 John, Cain was of the wicked one. Abel was the brother of Cain. First blood spilt in the history of mankind was the blood of a righteous man. You know by who? By his brother. You still think schisms and divisions are justified? It's an evil trait of the wicked one. I don't care what Christians say about dividing and schisms and divisions. I'm telling you, you try to justify it all you want. I'm telling you, it's unscriptural and its origin is satanic. Accuse of the brethren. But even Christians justify their sinful behaviors and attitudes. As we'll look at that in a minute when Peter says, be sober, think right. Not just be temperate, don't be drunk. It's not just talking about temperance. We'll look at that in a minute, but be, be, think about it. Christians need to think. Judas, whom Christ himself declared was a devil. He said, I've chosen you twelve, one of you is a devil. Judas walked amongst the disciples unbeknownst to them for three years. Walked side by side. He preached. I believe he also did miracles. Unbeknownst by his disciples. Wonder how many Judases sit amongst the saints. An old Puritan preacher once said that means one in every twelve professing Christians is a devil. You say, I don't believe that. Have you seen the church of state lately?
when the Lord was telling the disciples about the wheat and the tares, you know what he said? He said, it's the enemy that sowed tares amongst the wheat when they slept. See, they're not vigilant. He said, when they slept, the enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat. What does that mean? How many tares are amongst the wheat? How many tares are in the church? I had a conversation yesterday with my lovely daughter about church situations over the past 30, 40 years that she's even, not just myself, but her being in church for over 35 years, 30 years, 40 years, seeing things that kind of just bewilder you. Why would Christians do that? Why is it? There's always tares and wheats, goats and sheep. You see, we're ignorant to these things. We believe we should find a church where everything just fits perfectly and everything runs perfectly. Let me tell you something. Church is not perfect because we're imperfect human beings. And we make mistakes. And we disappoint. And we make failures. We even sin against each other. And you say, oh, no, we do. Seven times 70 a day. But the adversary comes and says, nah, you don't need to do that. You see, we're, he, he's all around. You can see the works of Satan all around. And we still are blind to it. We're, we still justify what we do. Peter's exhortation is, is needful today in this age of spiritual blindness to our adversary. Peter himself would suffer twice under the onslaughts of this great adversary. Twice. And yet now would declare how the true believer can resist him steadfast in the faith. We'll look at that verse here in a few minutes. Remember when the Lord says, I prayed for your faith that it failed thee not. When you've been converted after Satan sifts you, strengthen thy brethren. You know what he's doing in this text? He's strengthening his brethren. From what? From an experience of knowing Satan's devices. Saying, listen, I'm telling you from personal experience. Because I was sifted by him twice. Once I was rebuked by my Lord himself because I stood in the way and said, you're not going to do that. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. And the second time, he sifted me, made me deny or influenced me, tempted me to deny my Lord three times. So now that the Lord's prayed for his faith, it failed not. Now I'm going to strengthen you with wisdom I've got from, the, from Satan's onslaughts. And this is the first thing he says, be sober, be vigilant. I believe that's the first thing came Christ Peter's mind when he started talking about Satan. He went back to what happened to him when Christ rebuked him and when Satan sifted him and denied Christ three times. I believe he went back to those moments and he said, if I would have just been sober-minded and vigilant, that might not have happened to me. Sobriety of mind and temperance, coupled with a vigilant watchfulness, are the cornerstones upon which the believers resisting steadfast in the faith must be established. He doesn't start with resisting steadfast in the faith. He said, think about it. Be sober. This is a virtue that is quite amazing, yet one which Peter had learned the hard way, very important in our resisting Satan steadfast in the faith. You wouldn't think he'd start with that, but he does. And I believe that's the first thing came to his mind when he talked about Satan being our adversary. He said, you know, I remember when I failed his devices, you need to be sober. 
You know why he does that? You remember in your own spiritual life, in your own Christian life, when you've experienced something good or bad and you're trying to share that with somebody else, you speak from that experience. You're going, listen, I'm telling you, I've been down that road. This is what's happened to me. And I'm telling you, this is what you need to do. You know, we try to, you know, help others so they don't fall in the same pit, go down the same road. We speak from experience. That's what Peter's doing. And I believe Peter is thinking the very first thing, if I would have just been sober-minded, I might not have fallen for his devices. So now he strengthens his brother. Be sober-minded. Sober doesn't only mean not be drunken, but much more temperate in all things. And that's People kind of limit that just to the flesh. Well, be temperate in all things. When you drink, you eat, whatever. Be temperate in your body. And A lot of people exalt that almost to a place of deity. If you do that, you're more godly. You're more spiritual. That's not basically what Peter's talking about. Peter's basically talking about in mind and character. Be sober. Peter wasn't, wasn't drunk when Satan sifted him, right? Be sober in mind and character. It's to be grave, discreet, keeping a quiet, steady attitude, unruffled. Calmness. Stop and think. This is one thing Christians are very guilty of. Even though they have a vast amount of knowledge, they don't stop and think when it comes to practical Christianity. Listen to me. I'm not trying to be rude or demeaning. I'm simply saying in the 40 years I've been a Christian and the 35 I've been a pastor, Christians sometimes who have the greatest knowledge of Scripture never stop or sometimes never stops in a difficult situation to put their mind together and think. It's like they've turned off everything they learned about God and trusting in their own understanding. They don't stop and think. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why did you do what you did? Why do you think that's right? I'll give you an example. Look in Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. I, I, I love it how God's Word exposes Satan's devices and makes God's children more wiser in this conflict. Look in Luke 22. This is the event which happened to Peter, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. And the Lord said unto Simon, uh, listen to this, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. There's the part when Peter should have exercised sober-mindedness. The Lord gave him the instructions. You know, a lot of times when we read so quickly over this, we just concentrate on the Lord praying for uh, Peter's faith that it fail not when he's converted, strengthened his brother, and we, we rejoice in the Lord's. But I'm telling you in verse 31, the Lord was giving Peter the key, and Peter didn't listen. The key was what? Satan hath desired to have you, the enemy sift you as wheat. Stop and think now. If Peter would have stopped and thought and was sober-minded then when he said that, there's a good possibility Satan would never have sifted him. You say, well, you never know that. You know, God's purpose. I'm not talking about God's purpose. I'm talking about God giving us instructions and we're not heeding that. I'm, I'm so tired of the people who believe in the doctrines of grace throwing responsibility and accountability of the Christian before God out the window. It's not right. Though Peter should have listened. That's what, the, that's what the Lord is saying. But I prayed for thee that thy faith, 
fail not. That's the only thing that made it successful for Peter, is Christ prayed for him, of course. And when, not if, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. When the Lord prays, it's not like ours. It's like, you know, if the Lord will, when the Lord prays, it's done. (laughs) It happens. It's done. It's not if, it's when. But if Peter would have listened to the first, first exhortation of Christ, he wouldn't have got into trouble. Well, you know, God sovereignly planned it anyway, so regardless, oh, come on. You see what I mean? We're ignorant. We're not listening. The soberness of mind which Peter exhorts us to possess comes not from our own ability to be grave and discreet, but it is the effectual, listen to me, the effectual working of God's word upon our hearts and minds. Christ spoke the words, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Stop, be sober, Peter. I've given you the word. Now be sober-minded. Think about that. If you know the story, follow it through. The Lord said, well, the cock shall not crow three times, or three times, you'll deny me. Well, you know the progress he went through? It was, three, distinctly three times. First, first time, and then the second time. Even in those three times, listen to me, because I believe this is biblically stated. I believe during those three times that Peter would have stopped and remembered what the Lord told him, he wouldn't have made it that third time. He said, oh, no, God suddenly ordained it. Here we go again. Get off of that. Do you see how it went progressively? It wasn't all at once. Peter said, no, no, I'm not him. And then they said, and then the cock crowed. And then somebody else said something. He said, no, I'm not of Christ. And then the cock crowed. It's almost as God's given Peter time to be sober-minded here. Think about it. Look at what's happening to you. Look what I told you. And then the third time, he started cursing. I, I, I did not. And the cock crowed, bingo. Then he, then he knew. Then, he, then, oh, man, it hit him. You don't mean to tell me those three times that it was progressive that took minutes, if not 30 minutes, maybe even longer than that, that Peter couldn't have stopped him? And so, we are so boastful and arrogant, prideful of our knowledge of God that we don't stop and listen. Accountability and responsibility is not thrown out the window because God is sovereign. So I think Peter's going back to that moment saying, if I would have just stopped and been sober-minded for the moment... Yes, thank God, God turned it around and made it good for Peter and for us, and God was glorified through it. God sovereignly does that. He makes the crooked way straight. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't say, even though I know what's going to happen, I'm going to give you the opportunity. Boy, do the sovereign gracers hate that statement. Just completely let go and let God. No, I'll be sober-minded. Great peace have they which love thy law. Psalms 119. Great peace have they that love thy law. Great, not just peace, but great peace have they that love thy law. Great peace have they that love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. Stumbling block, cause to fall, ruin. Great peace have they which love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. You see? Sober-mindedness. It's not our own abilities. It's the effectual working of God's word. Our sober-mindedness comes from Scripture. That's why we encourage you to read Scripture all the time. I was reading through John 11, 
this morning in, in my reading, and I've read it many times, preached on it quite a few times, and, you know, the Martha Mary thing where Martha, they hear Jesus, and Martha runs out to meet him, you know, and says, you know, starts talking to him, and it says, and I, and I, and I missed that till this morning, it said, Mary sat still in the house. I thought, what a virtue. Of course, Mary sat someplace else before, you remember? At the feet of Christ, when Martha was serving and Martha said, oh, tell my sister help. Oh, Mary's chosen the good thing. Mary, Mary sat still in the house, and I thought, what a virtue. We read through that, and Mary, who learned the best thing, sat still in the house. You know when she went to meet Christ? Not of her own. Again, I noticed it this morning, for all these years. Christ called for her. Then she came. And I thought, that's what you get from sitting at the feet of Christ. That's sober-minded. That's patience. That's learning. She sat still in the house until Christ called for her. You see, it's the effectual working of the Word of God in our hearts that give us that sober-mindedness. The entrance of thy Word giveth light. Psalm 119. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Who? Whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Again, the mind. Soberness. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Christ himself said in Luke 21, in your patience possess your souls. He's talking about afflictions. In patience you possess your souls. You keep your souls. You guard your souls. In what? In patience. So, see, Peter's reminding himself and us when he uses the word soberness that I should have been sober-minded. Before you even attempt to resist steadfast in the faith, Satan's onslaughts, stop and think. You know what's wrong with the charismatic movement? It's all based on emotions. They do everything on the spur of the emotion. If it feels good, I do it. Well, let me tell you something. Feeling something good doesn't mean it's right. It said about Moses, he said he, he chose to suffer afflictions with God's people rather than uh, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin, that's what makes sin strong. It's pleasurable. It feels good. It feels nice. And it lures. It's pleasurable. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it's right. And the charismatics are mostly on emotions. Christianity is much more entailed than that, much more better than that, because God says, you're not a marionette on a string. You're not a puppet on a string. Think for yourselves. Oh, I'll just stand back and let God take. No, God says, think for yourselves. Isn't that amazing? I think that's great. Throughout Scriptures, we see that in the Gospels. When someone would come to you and say, what do you want from me? He'd ask them, what do you want? We're not puppets on a string. And I'm telling you, it was a blessed thing that Christ prayed for his faith that it failed not. It was blessed that God strengthened Peter through that. But let me tell you something. I believe with all my heart it would have been more blessed if Peter had not been sifted by Satan. In the temptation of Christ, who is our example, such sobriety of heart and mind was used against Satan. You remember? Whenever Satan came with Scripture, Christ would just come back with Scripture. And it's amazing, first time he comes to the first temptation, he came to Christ and tempted him. And then the second third, the Scripture says, then Satan taketh him. Think about those words. Satan's going to take the sovereign God. He's going he's to lead him. And, and he's gonna, Christ is going to submit himself and, and let Satan take him there. He did. He submitted himself. Sober. He says, okay, 
throw at me what you got. And Christ said, no, it's not Scripture. Scripture saith this, Scripture saith that. See, it's not a confidence in ourselves and our own ability to be sober-minded. It's a confidence in God's Word. This is why I love that verse. God has ruled or suddenly ruled that His Word should triumph through us. That's the amazing thing about the Word of God working effectually in the believer. It makes us sober-mindedness. We start thinking as God would have us think and not how we think. Our problem is we do away with God's Word in the moment of trial and adversity and start thinking ourselves. Stop it, Peter said. Stop it. He said, I did that. Be sober-minded. Stop and think. Look at 2 Timothy. A few more verses and we'll bring this to a close. 2 Timothy. I really don't, I didn't have time to get on vigilant because I really want to spend time on that too. This is really, really good what Peter's telling us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 and 17. We all know that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Effectual working of God's word in our hearts. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect. You mean sinless? No. That he may mature. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That he may be mature. As Christ used scripture against Satan's temptations... Beloved, so too Scripture enables us to be sober when resisting Satan steadfast in the faith. It's not just a feeling. Well, I'm going to stand here and resist him steadfast in the faith. No. Why are you resisting steadfast in the faith? Faith is not fanaticism. Faith is based and grounded, should be, must be, in Scripture. It's not fanaticism. Faith is not ignorance. It's knowledge of Christ of God's Word, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sober-mindedness is part of that. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, yet the spiritual state of our hearts and minds are vitally important against this great adversary. Let me say that again. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul said, yet the spiritual state of our hearts and our minds are vitally important against this great adversary. Think, Peter says, if I would have only thought when Christ told me this is what Satan desired to do to me. Look in Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Love this passage of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 2. In verse 10. When wisdom hath entered into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, look at this word, discretion shall preserve thee, Understanding shall keep thee to deliver thee. And the list goes on. You can read it. But I, I basically want to concentrate on what it said. When wisdom entereth into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant on thy soul, discretion, prudence shall preserve thee. Understanding shall keep thee. One more verse in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 10. 
Again, we have this sober nine. Now, listen what the Old Testament prophet says. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Do you see the condition, the spiritual condition and state of the person he's talking about in this text? We concentrate on let him trust in the name of the Lord, stay upon his God, Listen to the condition, the state of this person he's talking about, that walketh. Did you catch that? Walketh in darkness. He's not frantically running. He's walking. Sober. That's what God's Word gives us. Listen to me. I know if you've been saved long, you can bear witness to this, so please listen to me. It's like in times of trial and tribulation when we know that our hearts and minds should be devastated, running in 18 different directions, and there's this sense of calmness in our hearts and our minds. We're just calm, and we can't explain it. It's like something's different in me. I should be pulling my hair out, and yet I'm calm, and I'm assured of Christ's love and grace, and I'm confident that He's going to preserve me. That's sober-mindedness. And it came not of our own, but because of what we know of Christ. So Peter, looking back, says, our adversary is there, and I'm telling you, I experienced he's real. First thing you need to do is think straight. Even Martin Luther said it best in his second hymn, and I promise I will close with this in one verse said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That's the key. We have a great adversary, but let me tell you something. God is so pleased in giving us all the spiritual armor and power we need to withstand him steadfast in the faith. That gives God the greatest glory in our spiritual conflict and, advers- uh, and, and warfare with, with Satan, is when we, with confidence in God, can have the victory over Satan. Because the victory is in resisting him, not overcoming him. Again, I'll say that, but we'll mention that in the next few weeks coming. Everywhere in Scripture when it's talking about our adversary, the devil, it's never talking about conquering him, but always withstanding him and resisting him. That's the greatest feat of faith. We think, well, now let's just chop his head off and be done with it. God says, no, I'm not going to allow you to do that. I'm going to allow him to test you and tempt you, you know. I'm going to allow him liberty like he did with Job so that your faith might increase, that you might learn more about me and more about yourself. And I want you to understand that the power and the victory is in resisting him in this present life, not overcoming him. He's already a conquered enemy in Christ. He's already conquered. But I want you to know the victory of resisting him. And Christ is our example. It said in, in the Gospels when, when Satan tempted him the third time, it said Satan left him for a season. Why for a season? Well, he's going to be back. In this world, he'll be back, beloved. We might gain the victory today, but he'll be back. We might have beat one sin, but there's thousands more we need to still conquer. You say, man, is that Christian life? That is Christian life. That is the spiritual warfare, and that is what Christians are born in this world to be. Strong in the Lord and the power of His might. 
The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Micah 7, 8. I'll read it. Take this and write it above Ephesians 6 or here in Peter. Micah 7, 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Oh, let me tell you something. From 40 years of being a Christian, there's many times I've fallen. There's many times I've sat in darkness. I'm telling you, there's many times Satan had won the day. He won the battle. He hadn't won the war, but he won the battle. Many a times, many a times, many too often to be mentioned. But God never left me. Never left me. And just like he did Peter, he'll do for each and every true believer. He will not let Satan have victory. He will enable us, like Peter, to be strengthened through it. I pray that we would learn to be mature believers and learn from Peter's exhortation to be sober, be vigilant. Amen? So that we might resist. And that's what I want to look at next week is be vigilant. Christians lack that spirit of vigilance today. We need to understand what that means scripturally, okay? But first of all, I really wanted to spend time to help us to be reminded we need to stop and think. Be sober. Be sober, dearly beloved. Think for a minute. Sometimes, again, like I said, under pressure, under adversary, under affliction, it seems like we throw Scripture out. Stop and think. Amen? Be sober-minded. Be grave. Be alert. Be watching. Be discreet. Amen? And do that by learning God's Word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for, Lord, these exhortations. And Peter, we thank you, Lord, how he instructs us. He sits us down. He doesn't treat us like children. Lord, he sits us down and he teaches us from his personal experience about his his battle with Satan himself. Lord, you allowed that. You permitted that to happen so that we might be instructed today through his lessons. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take the word of God that we've heard today and help us. Lord, I pray to be more sober-minded in our Christian life, to stop and think, to be discreet. Lord, to be aware of danger. Lord, help us, we pray, that we might be more equipped to resist steadfast in the faith all Satan's devices and onslaughts. Father, it's a real war. I pray that we'd always be aware of it. But Lord, at the same time, let us know that he's a defeated foe. And Lord, one day, one day, when this is all said and done, Lord, when you reign high on heaven and you reign over all heaven and earth, Lord, one day we shall see this enemy, this foe forever defeated. And Father, we look forward to that day when you shall be crowned King of King and Lord of Lords. Father, we ask now that you guide us and direct us. Bless now we pray in Christ's name. Amen.